Ready when you are. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the No Deal Project podcast. <laughs> if this is your first time tuning in, my name is Kayla. I'm sitting here with Kylie. Hi. <laughs> it's like no one can see that dance that you just did. <laughs> Everyone that comes into a podcast recording always says, will it be video recorded? And I, I usually say, no, it's not video recorded. And then I found in my Zoom folder, it actually does record the video, yeah. <laughs> which is a great little secret if I ever want to pull those videos out, out later. Make a gif out of that dance. <laughs> I love that so much. Little dancey dance. It's Sunday. We're both in a sunspot here to chat with you about very exciting things. I don't know if I want to give the topic away yet. I don't, I, I won't, oh, I won't, I won't. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so let's hop into it. Perfect. Just by introducing you as a human. One thing I always like asking people is what's your favorite color? What book are you reading right now? What podcast are you listening to? What floats your boat? Love it. I love it. I love all of it. My favorite colors are green and burgundy. Burgundy. <laughs> yeah. um, so <laughs> a maroon, a merlot. <laughs> I, I love that so much. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm like so shook by that. I love that the specificity of that. I don't know many people whose favorite color is burgundy. So <laughs> I love a good burgundy. That's a good answer. Right? Um sorry. My book on my bedside table right now is Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I didn't know you were reading Untamed. Mm -hmm. How are you enjoying it? Oh, I love it so much. Glennon Doyle's, I love her so much, but her personality, I think, is similar to yours. A hundred percent. I was listening to <laughs> an interview with her and maybe Oprah, mm -hmm. and Oprah said, what's one thing that people would be surprised to hear about you. And she's like, oh, I'm not sure, babe. Cause Abby, her wife, Abby. Back. Yeah. She said, babe, what's one thing? I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure. And Abby said that you don't like people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a Scorpio mindset. I know you do like people, but I mean, that's not me. Like I definitely love people and I feel like Oh, I relate to that on so many levels, though. That does speak to my soul. So I'm also a Scorpio. Yes. Scorpio sun, Scorpio rising, and a Taurus moon are my three trifecta. But I also have a stellium in Scorpio and a stellium in Capricorn. And I discovered the other day when I had my birth chart looked at that I have zero, zero fire in any of my chart. My entire chart is water and earth. Whoa. I know, which is why I overthink everything. There is also a very large prominent Scorpio presence in your chart. I think we've talked so about much. this before. You have as much Scorpio as I do Gemini mm -hmm. in my chart. And the only person I've met that has more Scorpio in their chart than you is Chris's videographer, and he was my videographer too. Uh, he's amazing. Shout out to Phil, if you're listening. Phil, Phil let's have a chat. 
Phil Kim is his name. And when I met him naturally, I asked him what his sign was. And he was like, oh, I'm a Scorpio, but I have, I think he has six. <gasps> it repeats in his sign in his chart six times, which is a lot. That's a lot. Minus five. Scorpio. <laughs> I have five. <laughs> but now, I mean, we could talk about Zodiac forever. Sorry. I feel like I, I'm interrupting you. So you're reading Untamed. Mm-hmm. Favorite colors. Love that. You're a Scorpio. Is there anything else you want to share? I went to school for musical theater, so I used to be an actor and a performer, which speaks a lot to my personality. Yes, and I have a two and a half year old husky named Alice, and she is the sweetest little sweet pea in the whole world. And we rescued her. The love of your life. Mm -hmm. She's truly my soulmate. Yes, uh, she definitely is. Remember when I said that you would know your dog when you met them? Yep. I think about that often when I'm walking her. I think about that often too for myself. If I know a fur baby will eventually come into my life, but I have to wait for that moment that I believe that I've met my dog. And I do feel like I've already met that dog, but maybe in a different... I know. Walter, my little pal. But hopefully that time will roll around again and I'll know. Walter, if you're listening. (laughs) Walter was the sweetest little toy poodle that I met a few years ago and it was love at first sight and he holds his leash in his mouth and he's such a little pumpkin pie. And I truly, I mean, I I like dogs, but up until that moment, I never was like, oh, I need one. Mm -hmm. This is my dog until I met Walter. And then maybe that's how people, anyways. (laughs) <laughs> it's like talking about- how people feel about their partners is yeah. that what you were gonna say <laughs> <laughs> oh, shout out to all the dog owners out there and all your little pups if you want to send a little photo of your um your pup to the move to heal project instagram please do please do please do outside of all those things is there anything else you want to share before we dive into t- today's topic i've recently had to write a few bios. This is a bit of a tangent, but I recently had to write a few bios and it got me thinking. I always used to write them and say, I'm Kylie, I'm from Toronto, enter my occupation. And I've so aggressively moved away from that being a defining feature of who I am as a person that I've like made a promise to myself to only write a bio with characteristics that define me as a human without having my job define me Mm -hmm. so I'm trying to think of what I wrote in my most recent bio my favorite smell in the world is bonfire I knew that about you (laughs) I love true crime yes my favorite murder is always the podcast that I'm listening to are you Karen or Georgia I'm definitely Georgia yeah I'm a hundred percent Karen I know (laughs) (laughs) I am so, so aggressively Georgia. I'm very aggressively Karen. I know. That's why we're good friends. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, I just finished reading this book called Scary Close okay. by Donald Miller. Donald Miller, one of my fave authors, he took a hiatus there for a bit. Now he's back. And in Scary Close, he talks about, I think he seeks out mental health support at this place in Nashville. Mm. And when he arrived there for this support program, uh, everyone had to check their wallet, like their ID, their cell phone, la la la. 
it was strongly emphasized that people shouldn't share what their occupation was. Oh. Yeah, and uh, obviously they had reasons for doing that, but the people that work there were saying, this is how Donald Miller describes it in his book, but once you find out what someone's occupation is, it can change dynamics really fast. And Mm -hmm. the worker said it's quite sad actually because people will reveal what their job is on the very last day. And she said, sometimes we'll see friendships that have been building up over the last few weeks just fall apart because people are making a judgment call on like people's jobs or maybe people are joining and they're not employed. Totally. Yeah. So preconceived notions about that job too, like power dynamics. Yes. Yeah. So I like that conscious awareness to Mm -hmm. instead describe your favorite smell. Yeah. Thanks. I love that so much. I think my favorite smell is cookies baking or what kind of cookie chocolate chip cookie always. Yes. How do you eat them? Like gooey in the middle a little bit or like a hard cookie? Nope. Has to be crispy on the outside, but gooey in the middle. Nice. Yeah. I really want a chocolate chip cookie now. I mean, using that as a no kind of segue into what we're going to It's talk. about cookies. <laughs> Today we're here to talk about cookies. I guess before I segue, we should just briefly describe how we met. I would love that. If you want. So Kylie and I met in 2017. We both got hired at SoulCycle. And the thing that I remember most about that meeting is we were doing our training in the basement of some building off Queen Street in Toronto. And we took a snack break and you and I went on a walk and immediately connected. I think there were there must have been 15 people in our group. Mm-hmm. And you and I connected right away. And I remember at the end of our walk, at the end of that break, I thought, I just feel like I've made a lifelong friend. I had that feeling after our meeting and we, we kind of just gravitated towards each other too in that group. That's yeah. how I remember it. Oh, a hundred percent. I think we were talking about mental health too. We were talking about mental break. health. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And now here we are. So wild. It's, life is crazy. <laughs> so we met at SoulCycle. We both are now not at SoulCycle anymore. But what a great place to meet and foster a connection. 100%. So we're here today to talk about MRKH, and Kylie's going to expand on what that is. But I reached out to Kylie because she recently wrote an article about her experience with MRKH for National MRKH Awareness Day, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. For National Infertility Week. But okay, yes. So before we kind of dive deep into what MRKH is, there's a part of the article that you shared where you described sitting in the doctor's office. And I mm-hmm. was curious, I'm curious to know how long ago that was, how old were you when everything kind of started? Maybe we could start mm-hmm. there with you sitting in the doctor's office. Yeah, absolutely. So I was diagnosed with MRKH when I was 20 which is 11 years ago now, wild. And what the article that you're referring to that I wrote for Beautiful You, MRKH, which is a charitable foundation founded by two women who also have MRKH out of the States. So they've been doing a writing series, which is Letter to My Younger Self. 
And they reached out to me and asked me if I would write through one of our MRKH Facebook groups. And I was very excited but nervous to write about it. As a Scorpio, (laughs) using my voice and sharing my story while something that I feel incredibly called to do is something that scares the shit out of me on a daily basis. So it felt right in my soul though. So I knew that I really wanted to, but the part of the story that you're referring to sitting in the doctor's office was, it was really important to me as I sat down to write it, that everybody understand to the best of their ability about reading about it, what that day actually felt like and what the gravity of that moment was like to just write a letter to my younger self and say, you're going to get through this. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Everything will be okay. Didn't carry the same weight that I needed it to for what that day felt like, which is the day you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I guess for everybody listening, which if anybody listening at this point does know what MRKH is, that's fucking amazing because it is something that is not really known about and not spoken about and actually nicknamed the silent disease because of that. I feel like I'm relatively woke when it comes to things like this because of my, you know, my own journey with illnesses and Mm -hmm. with illnesses and uh, having celiac disease, you know, that was like a long a long time to get diagnosed, like just had lots of ups and downs. And I had to read a lot during that time because no one knew what was wrong with me. And my point is when you shared this with me, when I met you, I had no idea. And Mm -hmm. which which was surprising for me. And so to echo that sentiment, if anyone is listening and knows that's great. But also what I'm thinking about is I believe there's a calling on your life to educate absolutely and share and And absolutely maybe there is this you know when you're thinking of launching a product this is like a stay with me but okay (laughs) when you're thinking of like for entrepreneurs like on shark tank they're always like you have to look at where there's a gap Mm -hmm. uh, where there's something missing like a need for it a need for it and with some this there's a need for this education around MRKH mm-hmm. I just believe that you're you're here to share mm-hmm. not just share there's so much more but totally no I'm excited that you said that too because it's something I want to touch on later in the podcast but I really do feel like I'm coming into my own and into my voice and have the courage and confidence to carry me forward to be that voice now. So I'm really excited about that, even if it is scary. Mm -hmm. On that notion of sharing about MRKH for people Mm -hmm. that are listening and don't know, maybe just tell us a little bit about what it is. Sure. Yeah. So MRKH is a rare congenital disorder, which means it's acquired during development and present at birth. And it occurs in approximately one in 5,000 females, and it affects the development of the reproductive system. So 
uterus, cervix, vagina, fallopian tubes, ovaries, and essentially it doesn't, the reproductive system, develop at all, or it only develops partially while you're in your mother's womb. So for me, I was born without a cervix, without a uterus, without fallopian tubes, and without a fully formed vagina. So my vagina was only two centimeters long. The doctor called it a dimple um, when she diagnosed me questionable verbiage but questionable languaging right doctors tack sometimes they do great things but we can all improve in some areas. I completely agree shout out I love my doctor but yeah doctor I just find that languaging like a little not helpful but yeah yes so also people with MRKH do have female chromosome patterns. So external genitalia and secondary sexual characteristics all develop normally. So pubic hair, breasts develop naturally. So that's why it goes undiagnosed for so long. I've never had a period. I never will. I will never carry my own child. And a lot of the diagnosis is done when a teenager or young female doesn't get their period that's usually the time when it is diagnosed yeah and I'm happy you said that because that was going to be my next question was Mm -hmm. is it screened for at all or is it just kind of like a a waiting you I mean not a waiting but there would essentially then be no way to know until exactly period isn't showing up Mm -hmm. exactly yes a hundred percent They don't, to my knowledge at this point yet, do any screening for it. If you did receive an ultrasound and that's what you were going in to look for or an MRI, those are both some of the tests that I had done while they were trying to figure out what was going on with me. Um, You would be able to see clues about it, but putting the full diagnosis together takes a little bit longer. And especially as well for people with MRKH and the diagnosis, it is varied. Everybody has different severities. The reproductive system develops a little bit, not at all. It's all different. Like everybody's diagnosis is individual to them. It's not a cut and dry diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Makes it a little more challenging to navigate. Totally. Imagine in regards to host diagnosis. Totally. Because with different kinds of conditions, they might look the, the exact same, or not quote unquote the exact same. I'm trying to think of something, but like person to person, there isn't like that much variance. And in mm-hmm. that way, it might create a feeling of like, oh, I genuinely am not alone because this person is experiencing the same thing as I am. But that's where my mind goes is because there is the possibility for variance person to person, it would perpetuate almost that feeling of isolation. Like I really am alone. In absolutely. It. Yeah, absolutely. That the variance of it. And then I would even say on top of that, when you're diagnosed, then creates the completely different complex layer. If it's 15, that's an entire different, like entirely different 
mental hurdle to get over than if you're diagnosed at 20, if you were not even ever diagnosed at 20. And I know women who were diagnosed in their forties, they finally were able to put a name to it because 40 years ago, medicine even where isn't where it was 20 years ago. So there are some women, yeah, in the community who all they knew is that they didn't have a period, they couldn't have children, but they had no answers. That's crazy. And I keep thinking about, uh, in no way am I comparing my medical journey to yours, but the thing that I kept thinking about was I was so sick for so long Mm -hmm. and we were bracing for the worst. But when I did finally get the diagnosis, it was relieving Mm -hmm. in a way to just have an answer. And by long for me, it was a few years. So my point in bringing that up was I cannot imagine Mm -hmm. what it would be like to go into your forties with no, it's like, you're just, your body's just in a gray zone or like your mind gray zone thinking, am I crazy? Is this psychosomatic? Like what's happening? Mm -hmm. And what I think would probably come up would be things like shame or guilt, or I just feel like that would create a lot of internal turmoil. Oh yeah. Speaking for myself can only say extreme amounts of shame and turmoil. Yes. And I mean, that was one of my questions that I wanted to ask, but before I forget, before Mm -hmm. we go there, is there a risk for it going undiagnosed outside of the, uh, the obvious effect it would have on someone mentally, but is there the reason why they don't screen for it? Because there really is no, it doesn't. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah. I think I know what you're saying. I have two strains of an answer. The first is if it was left undiagnosed in a lot of people, there would be no ill effect. Like there's no ill effect on your health if it goes undiagnosed on your physical health. Mental health, it would be a different topic, especially again, because the development of the reproductive system varies from person to person. So for example, if you are growing up and then you go to have vaginal intercourse for the first time, but you have a fully formed vagina, you might not even realize that you don't have a cervix or a uterus until you're trying, until you don't have your period or until you're trying to get pregnant. Like that for me not having that vagina there was the biggest physical alarm that went off of being like something is not right. The period was honestly for me even secondary because my mom got her period late, like 18 or 19. And my doctor kept telling me, you're probably following in your mom's footsteps. Don't worry. I'm sure it'll come later. That's why it took for me until I was 20 for my doctor to take it seriously and not look into it earlier. But then the second you asked if there would be any, yes. Okay. Any physical issues down the line, if it wasn't diagnosed. So there's actually what they have figured out and put a name to is that there are two different types of MRKH, which a lot of people don't realize as well. And so MRKH one is what I have 
where it only affects your reproductive system, but MRKH2 is the underdevelopment of the reproductive system and other internal organs. So a lot of people who have MRKH2 are missing a kidney and have issues with spine development. Whoa. Yeah. It's so interesting how much of a variance there is. I know. That's wild. And I know it's, it, yeah, wild is like the only word that I can always come back to. And the thing, which is another mindfuck that they do not know and have no reasoning behind like why it happens. That's crazy. I mean, I'm saying that that's crazy now is my reaction. But also when I was trying to figure out what was medically wrong with me, so many people were like, yeah, we're not sure. Like, it's just like not a, it was like not a thing. And that's unsettling. (laughs) Again, right. Slam the medical system by any means at all. But I think it's just, there's something about the, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but like, but there's something about that that just seems so impending doom almost. Yeah. Unsettling really resonated with me when you said that. And it is because we are taught in society that you go to the doctor and the doctor has an answer for you. You know, like you look to people in those professions when you don't have the answer yourself and you are in need of something and for doctors to turn around, quick side note, most of the doctors that I dealt with actually had never heard of it. And two people looked at me when I told them post-diagnosis and I was getting another checkup. What? No, that's not real. Which where my mind goes is, again, want to emphasize that in no way am I drawing comparison or and I don't want to- No, but it- it is relatable. It is saying that we've experienced the same thing because we haven't, but uh, there was some trauma around my own medical diagnosis because back in the early 2000s, no one knew what celiac was. And I went to the best specialists in Toronto. I must've seen at least a dozen and all of them blank face. Like I think I have celiac disease. One specialist pulled a book off his wall and searched for it and he was like oh then all you have to do is eat gluten-free and I'm like are you oh my god (laughs) like I think with that kind of unsettled I just keep picturing like a gray blob Mm -hmm. yeah human beings were we do well with black and white and this is also I think why the pandemic has been hard because it's such a gray area like there's no Mm -hmm. certainty And the thing that I keep thinking about is how a situation like that would prompt someone to question themselves repeatedly. Am I making this up? Am I crazy? Like almost like a gaslighting of themselves. Maybe I'm making this into a bigger deal than it is. Maybe I'm just being dramatic. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. probably fine. You know, like using that as a segue into that question that I was going to bring up, once you receive that diagnosis from the doctor, how did it affect you? Again, this is like a broad stroke question, but did you have those feelings come up? Like what was your reaction? Yeah. 
Yeah, let's try to unpack all of this from the get-go. And I'm glad that you brought this up because I wanted to quickly touch on why I think your diagnosis journey of celiac is so relatable and something that you said earlier made me think about my MRKH diagnosis in a different way. So with your diagnosis, you were looking for answers. And then upon getting them, it was almost like a relief because along your journey, you were having these physical ailments. So I feel like for my journey, it was actually the complete opposite because although I knew in theory that something wasn't totally right, I had never felt off. Mine, like I'd never felt off. It never felt like there was anything wrong going on that was making me sick. And so once I knew that there was something, there was some impending diagnosis or information coming that something was off, it was wrong. Like I said, with not having a fully functioning vagina, that definitely tipped it off and not having my period after a certain point then going to see ultrasound specialists, MRIs, other doctors, all of these people who still couldn't do anything finally up to that day that I write about sitting in the doctor's office where she looked at me and said, you have MRKH syndrome. And then you're met with the explanation of what it all is. It honestly in that moment felt like my entire life ended and that I had to like learn how to live as an entirely different person with a different trajectory, which is too much information to try to wrap your head around in one, in that moment, you know? And also being that age Mm -hmm. at 20, you have an idea of how your life is going to unfold And it feels almost like a, not a hanging out to dry, but not, not a hanging out to dry. Like the doctor's like, well, this is how it is. And then the after effects of processing that are huge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also a quick note, MRKH stands for the four doctor's names of the doctors who originally discovered it. So this doctor sat across from me. I always have to write these names down to read them out loud, but imagine you are already nervous. This impending doom is coming. You're sitting beside your mom who you can feel the energy coming off of her because she's just as scared as you are. And this doctor looks at you and goes, you have Meyer Rokentansky Custer Hauser syndrome. That's a lot. I literally remember staring at her and I was like, I am in a movie. This is not my life. What is happening right now? It feels like a movie. Yeah. Hearing that, because in my opinion, this is where my Gemini brain would go. I'd be like, oh my God, the name is long. That means it's bad. Yeah. It sounds long and bad. Yeah. Yeah. Was, was the doctor that said that to you one of the doctors in the name? No. No. Okay. Oh, I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God. Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. And I think mm-hmm. my mind goes straight to mental health. Obviously, yeah. you're, and this is how I picture it would go for me. I'd leave there. I would literally be like, my life is over. 
what the hell I'm not who I thought I was. Mm-hmm. Who am mm-hmm. I? Yeah. If I can jump in mm-hmm. because there was no physical illness that was making me sick that made ignoring the diagnosis and ignoring action a lot easier, which was not good for my mental health, but it immediately you're like met with this insane diagnosis. The period thing at that point was the least of my worries, but it was, you don't have a vagina. So intimacy is off the table. And now you have the hurdle of having to share this horrifying, not it, like it felt horrifying, this horrifying diagnosis with other people, if you ever want to be intimate with them to let them know that you're different and weird and broken. These are not things that come with the diagnosis. Let me preface. I don't feel that way now, but that's how I felt when I was diagnosed. And then you'll never have children. You won't carry a child. And so leaving it at first was just letting all of that try to sink in and the the best way that I can explain my mental health through the journey that like has been the last 11 years is at the beginning that I just ran so far away from wanting to deal with what I had just been told and like I said because there weren't any I wasn't getting sicker. I wasn't, it wasn't showing on the outside. It was this turmoil internally that I could pretend that I was normal. I could pretend that I was fine and just hope to God that no one would ever find out. And I think avoidance is a strong coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Strong. Uh, I was an avoidance queen, you know, like oh. I think. I'm an avoidance queen. <laughs> I think we've talked about this before with our yeah. own journeys, but like I avoided until I physically could not avoid anymore. Like, yeah. I, like I'll have, someone will need to drag me into therapy to address yeah. my issues. Like, oh yes. I was yeah. <laughs> having a blast in avoidance land and I feel yeah. like you did as well. <laughs> totally. Maybe and the thing, blast, but like, just being like, it's, this is fine. The meme that we always talk about. With and burning it. <laughs> Surrounded by fire, drinking a cup of coffee. Yep. And one thing I was also thinking about as you were sharing that was just this t- this notion of women are socialized into believing that we need to become mothers in order to have worth or value. Yeah. That's where my mind goes is processing that, even though like mm-hmm. that's just because we're socialized that way doesn't mean it's true. But no, exactly. I'm telling that to someone who's 20. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up because it that was one of the biggest mind fucks for me through that. And for me as well, at that point, I, I know a lot of women grow up people grow up and they dream about having a family, like they will be a nurturer and a caretaker in that way. And for me, it was never something that was on the direct horizon. It was always maybe later, if I feel like it, that kind of thing. So for me, that wasn't the 
biggest pain point of the diagnosis, the lack of vagina and having people realize that I was different was the thing that was the biggest burden for me. But as far as the like women role in society, it was a huge thing that I kept repeating in my brain because when you really break it down, and this is the thing that I had such a hard time with was in nature, females are made to re- like reproduce and carry the young and birth the babies and take care of them. And trying to wrap my head around the fact that in creation of the world, if a female couldn't reproduce, then it sounds a little dramatic, but it felt very real to me at the time. Then like, what was the point? Like, what is my purpose? Why am I even here? I don't think it sounds dramatic at all. I think it sounds exactly like what anyone in your position, what that thought process would be. Be like, I would have those same thoughts too. Yeah. And again, like I said before, for someone who's 20, I mean, like you're just Mm -hmm. forming your beliefs about who you are, your place in the world, your place in relationships. Mm -hmm knowing what I know about the Zodiac Mm. and with how important sexual energy is to Scorpio signs. Mm -hmm. That's where my mind went is knowing you would be maybe a little more distressing. We want to put them into categories than processing being a mom. No, you're totally, yeah, you're totally spot on. And it is to the many different layers of where I would let people into and what I kept to myself. I was at the end of my second year of college when I was diagnosed. So I was going into my third year. It was a three-year program. And I lived with two of my best friends in third year. And when I first told them about MRKH to everybody else who I ever spoke to about it, all I told them was that MRKH, you're born without a uterus. Like I couldn't even be honest with the people who I was closest with because I was so ashamed that this, and again, it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking on and it's by nature of the diagnosis and all of the parts that it deals with, it is as society deems taboo because you're even taught as a small child, like those are your private areas. You don't talk about that. It's this huge unlearning of trying to become whole with my diagnosis over the last 11 years was unlearning a lot of these societal expectations, which is where most of my shame came from. And I was so ashamed and embarrassed honestly to even talk about this up until the last like two years that I couldn't have sex and also I write about this but sex is not only vaginal intercourse sex is being intimate with somebody so if you feel intimate with that person and that is special with you that is all that matters it does not need to be this thing that society deems as losing your virginity and there's only one way to do it and 
I'm ranting a little bit because I'm really passionate about this, but Mm -hmm. it was that that was the hardest for me. Like going into third year college already, I was 20. So to a lot of people, the fact that I hadn't lost my virginity yet, I was a late bloomer and there's just so much pressure put on teenagers and young adults and people who are growing up and should just be experienced like experiencing the world as they want to and as it comes at them but the pressure of Mm -hmm. sex is put up on a pedestal this is something that is talked about a lot with women and women Mm -hmm. so when a woman is with another woman for the first time why does sex have to be and again this is how we've been socialized exactly what happens between a man quote unquote between a man and a woman and a penis and a vagina. Yes. And thank God for Gen Z that are like, hold up. Like, I'm not saying that we weren't having these conversations before, but I think now it is being perpetuated by the Gen Z culture. But absolutely. Like, that's not what sex is. Like sex also look this way. And so to tie into that, to what you were saying, but I think the challenging thing is that back in the 90s early 2000s mm-hmm. ain't nobody talking about that nobody was talking no. about that like my mind goes to Brene Brown and how she talks about shame mm-hmm. and secrecy you know yes. shame flourishes in secrecy mm-hmm. <laughs> or I don't know if flourish is the right word to use but like shame thrives in a secret yeah. environment so I can only imagine how much shame you carried around mm-hmm. for so long yeah It was perpetuated too, again, because it was my mission in life at that point literally was you keep this a secret, like no one will know. And to the point where, so when you are diagnosed, if you're in a situation like me, where you don't have a fully formed vagina in the States, they do surgeries, which sound if it works for you, great. They aren't legal in Canada. So uh, it wasn't an option for me. But so if you are interested and would like to have a fully formed vagina, which I did, you do dilating process. And the dilators start small and get like progressively larger. And what you have to do every day, this is looping back to the shame thing you were just talking about, but this Mm -hmm. was like my perpetuated shame cycle was happened within me wanting to keep it a secret and my dilating process. Cause what you're supposed to do is you just sit. And I always tell people this and I could just say dildo for a different reference, but I always think my dilators were so clinical and cold looking. They just like look like rounded end candlesticks like they were like this opaque off white and just so cold and gross. And so that's what it looked like. And you just have to sit there and force this thing into the opening where your vagina would be with as much pressure as you can possibly muster because the skin and like the inside of a vagina is malleable and stretches. And so that skin is still there and has that same uh, consistency. Yeah. So you can stretch it, but you have to sit and just apply hard pressure for 30 minutes a day 
That's so in order. Yeah. So what I would do, oh my God, it was awful. I would like try to put on an episode of friends and just like sit there, but I know. Right. (laughs) But it hurt. Like it hurt so much. Sometimes you would bleed and it in sitting there and being in so much pain in my own secret little world, I was constantly just like beat over the head for those 30 minutes that like, you aren't normal. You're never going to have sex with somebody. You're never going to be intimate with them. People aren't like this. If you would have started your dilating six months ago, it would be done by now. Like it just was this like constant cycle. And then I wouldn't do it because I wouldn't want to feel that way. But then I would feel guilty about not doing it because I felt further behind on this journey towards normalcy. And when I was able to like start to have vaginal intercourse with partners, like if my vagina was like halfway formed, basically I would just be, I would, I didn't tell people at first. I was just like, I was so out of my own body in the intimate experience because I would be lying there and just hoping that like, please don't notice, please don't ask. I wonder if it feels like everybody else does, Mm -hmm. you know, like it, me trying to keep it a secret, which is what you just said, perpetuated the extreme feelings of shame. It sounds like you didn't give yourself any kind of out when it came to the dilating dilating Mm -hmm. process. It's like any answer was the wrong or like any choice Mm -hmm. was like the wrong choice or like no compassion there. And also where my mind goes when you're talking about actually being intimate with someone, I would think I'll just drink a ton. That's what I would have done in that situation. I think I'd be like, if we get drunk, enough Mm -hmm. it will help me feel better and maybe they won't notice that would yeah and I don't know if that's what you are doing but that's where my mind goes is yeah that yeah so great segue because also as I mentioned at the beginning I wanted to come back to where I'm feeling comfortable with this sharing this message and it being aligned with my soul's purpose but in the running away from my diagnosis and this extreme shame spiral. I didn't realize it at the time, but in looking back was when I was able to say like, oh, I can see that happening is that's where I felt I ran away from everything, right? And running away from everything meant running away from being present in my own body. And so my mind, body, and soul connection at that point completely dissipated. And I was just completely disassociated and disconnected from my body. Um, My body first and foremost, because my body is the first thing that came back later. But I ran straight from trying to run from my own shame, which is not possible, as we all know, but so many people try to do it. I ran straight from my own shame into what started as fun partying and drinking all the time, which was normal for a young 20 something. That's what society seemed was normal and I could get away with and I was okay with, but I continued to run so far and stay 
disconnected from my own body that I ran directly into a serious substance abuse issue, which is something that is difficult to talk about truthfully that I am always trying to bring words to. I had a cocaine addiction that I went to group therapy for and luckily can say that I am not in the same place that I used to be in my young 20s, which I'm very happy for. But the thing with addiction, which is tied in, it's directly completely tied into my diagnosis and shame and not, I don't want to say not dealing with it because it, everything happened in the only way that I could handle it to at that time. So I don't like to put say, oh, if you would have dealt with it, then things would have been different. I'm a Scorpio. It's the most addictive (laughs) sign of the Zodiac. This was always meant to be my story. So I could hopefully help other people who are in the same situation as me. And I think with that route of addiction or substance and or substance abuse from an outsider, that makes sense to me Mm -hmm. because there's so much unprocessed pain. And I, I know few 20, 21, 22 year olds that are like, let's dive into the pain. Yeah, true. <laughs> it just makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And not having the language for it, like an interesting trauma fact, but this is from brain scans of people with like PTSD or, or uh, chronic trauma, but mm-hmm. it could be the same in this scenario where trauma affects Broca's area in your brain, which is part of the brain responsible for speech. So when people say, Mm. when people can't describe a traumatic event or they don't have the words for it, it's because they actually can't like Mm -hmm. in the brain, they don't have the verbiage for it. Mm -hmm. And in the work that I've done surrounding like mental health, uh, with the readings that I've done on addiction, you know, mm-hmm. like people want to feel better yeah, without addressing the pain. And so yeah. naturally drugs and alcohol is a logical step. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know where I was going with that point, but maybe just to like throw down some, not affirmation, but to just say like, you're, I, it makes sense to me why your journey went that way. Thank you. I think a lot of people to loop that back to people that might be listening mm-hmm. and in that exact same spot. They're 20 years old, 19, 18, 22, however old they are listening. They haven't told their friends yet. They're maybe drinking a lot. Maybe they're doing cocaine. You know, it's so important to have these conversations and to normalize conversations really around this, it's that holding a hand out and saying, I know that shame feeling and you're not mm-hmm. alone in it. And not to quote Brene Brown again, but she's always like, when we talk about things, yeah, as soon as, as, soon as you share your shame, it can't survive anymore. No, it takes away the power. Yeah, and I think just to go back to that first thought of like oh you're here you've come through all of this so Mm -hmm. you can share now like yeah you can be a lamplighter for other people that really need it yeah and I 
I mean, I'm biased, but I feel like there's so much strength in a, in a story. Mm-hmm. And people like you are the people that are here to make change, mm-hmm. to change the, the world. Because it's like you needed something that never came to you. Mm-hmm. And now you had to fight tooth and nail to get it for yourself, to find mm-hmm. clarity, answers. Now you have that gift you can share it with people, you know, like it, you're breaking cycles. Yeah. Thanks, Kayla. It made more sense in my head before I said it that way. No, it, <laughs> it makes sense. I feel like my Gemini brain is always like, say this, <laughs> funny things. And I'm like, calm down, guys. I have to pick one. Like, get in line. <laughs> <laughs> but that was just lost my train of thought. I'm just you did to- say what? Would I like what would I say to someone? Yeah, that's a really good place to take this conversation next, actually, is if someone's listening, mm-hmm. what would what would you genuinely say to them? Someone will be listening and to before you jump in and answer, your blog, the blog piece you wrote for the Move Teal project in 2018, probably, still yeah. the highest read thing on the Move Teal project. And that is actually crazy because I have people from literally all over the world that have written for me and I want to say between 30 and 35 people and so in my mind that is an indication of how many people are suffering silently Mm -hmm. so what would you say so many things trying to think of where to start so I'm just going to attempt to speak it instead of think about it. But what I would say is that even if you do feel completely alone and ostracized for whatever reason, you aren't, even if it does feel that way, like you are not alone and there are people out there who can help and who can understand. And if it is somebody who is a similar psyche to me, knowing that your story and the fact that you are different is not a burden on anybody else's life. And you don't have to go through it by yourself. And so to add on to that too, even if it feels like the hardest thing in the entire world to do, please, please, please find somebody that you can trust to talk to because as like we've talked about perpetuating that shame and trying to keep things a secret, that's like darkness feeds on itself in that way. And you are worth so much more than fighting alone in the dark by yourself And I honestly do believe that, and what I hope that I can do in this life is help people see that by going into that darkness within yourself, that's where you find the light, but you have to be willing to go in and do the work, even if it's so scary. So find somebody you trust that you can talk to, even if the first thing that you feel like you can talk to is a journal 
even just like being honest with yourself, you know, I didn't do that at the beginning. And that's something that I, I love journaling now. I find it so beneficial and even just getting the thoughts out of your own head and out from internalizing and being able to write it down, you process it differently with a different understanding and a different like self-compassion and seeking professional help. Truthfully, a diagnosis like this, and this isn't something that I took seriously at the beginning, is it is a trauma. It is a trauma. And even if it doesn't feel like for me personally, I didn't feel like I deserved to call it a trauma because I would always say to myself, what happened to that person is so much worse. Like, how dare I say that what I've gone through is a trauma and just finding self-compassion to realize that everybody's pain or trauma looks different, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't affect you in serious ways. Just to touch on trauma, essentially trauma is anything that overwhelms your, your own ability to cope. It's, it is really individual. So I would say, <laughs> I just lost my train of thought, but it is a trauma. Yeah. As you were saying, like literally your life, like your life is like, just does this whole yeah. spin around. And it's the level of information mm -hmm. for a person at such a young age. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know who would be going into that being and being able to process that in a neat and tidy way. Yeah. Some sort of yeah. human person. I don't even know if that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. True. I was just going to say something you said made me think of it. Also now too, there are more resources than there were when I was diagnosed. If you like find you can find me on Instagram and my DMs are always open. There are far more MRKH handles on Instagram that have it in there. There are Facebook groups. There is the beautiful you MRKH online community. And even finding a community like that, it does help you feel less alone. So as a resource, it's mm -hmm. super important. A question I do have quick and I don't like we're wrapping up, but did your friend groups change at all? Did that have an impact on who you decided to invite into your life as a friend? Or I, I'm just thinking with like such delicate information, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how did that affect friendships? Yeah, because of my Scorpio nature and who I am as a person, uh, keeping everything still quite secretive yeah <laughs> no one can see Kayla right now but she's making a tiny little box with her claw hands <laughs> it didn't really change my friend groups but what I can say about that is who I chose to disclose that information to and I remember saying this to you about a completely different topic, but it's something that I still hold close is I don't think that you can trust your vulnerability with somebody who doesn't have the capacity to handle their own. 
And again, a Brene Brown quote, the sentiment is you can't sit in the dark with others until you've learned to sit in the dark by yourself. I'm going to look that up later and it's going to be so wrong, but the sentiment is there. And so for, (laughs) for friend groups, I would just encourage that while it is my mission to share and educate that there is still a level of safety. You need to still be able to feel safe with whoever you decide to share. Yeah. And I would assume that that same sentiment would apply to close relationships Mm -hmm. because my next thought now we're backtracking, but that's okay. Relationally. I mean, was Dylan the first person that you dated or was there someone before Dylan? No, there were, cause Dylan and I started dating. It's taking me a second. Good thing he's not listening right now. <laughs> five, it's fun. We will have been together for five years this year. So it was 2016 and I was diagnosed 2010. So I did date someone for a significant amount of time and I never told them. And looking back at our relationship in the moment being in my young 20s and it was a long term relationship I didn't realize how like you can't fully be present with somebody if they don't know or understand who you are like if you are constantly keeping a secret from someone that will always be a barrier in your relationship and there's nothing wrong with that as well that's something that there's no shame in having that barrier because some relationships maybe aren't going to go further. But if you, mm-hmm. if you are trying to create that intimacy with another person, doing the hard thing is being vulnerable and sharing. And I actually just started writing another article today, literally about this. Somebody who I dated shortly after who was a serious relationship who was the first person I first uh, like partner that I told about MRKH, I broke in telling them I couldn't tell them in a normal way because that wouldn't, that would be out of character for me. I was lying naked on the bed, like with the covers pulled up to my face, staring straight at the ceiling because we had gotten to the moment in our relationship where we were about to be physically intimate with each other. And I was lying there and I was like, fuck. And I just knew that I had to say something because I knew that this relationship meant something to me and just blurted it out. And I wrote a poem about those words lingering in the air (laughs) about that. It's a bit of a like side note and a tangent, but. (laughs) I was, I was going to say, did any of those fears that you had about someone mid intimate experience? Never. No. Yeah. No. Oh yeah. So that's a great, oh, I'm so glad that you said that. That's such an important thing to briefly talk about too. Mm -hmm. It, No, none of the fears that ever were eating me alive inside came true. Like they were never real. And I know I remember being scared to share. What if the person would walk away? What if suddenly 
they wouldn't want to be with me anymore. What if all the what ifs, what ifs eating away at my brain, I was only ever met with like friends finding out, partners finding out with curiosity and support and love and space. Like people who were so willing to hold space for me. And that's actually something else that I would encourage is just trust that your worst fears are only existing inside yourself to try to keep your secret there and put the trust outward that the people, the people who you tell and the people who do love you and hold space for you and want to learn and listen, those are your people. Cause it could happen. That's the thing too. Somebody could respond negatively. Somebody could say this, whatever it is, for whatever reason they choose to walk away, those aren't your people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just hopping aboard again, the Brene Brown train. Yeah. This morning I was listening to the Red Table podcast, which I'm a huge fan of with- I don't know that. Cheetah and Willow Smith. Stop. And there's- I'm writing it down. It's so good. But Brene Brown was on the Red Table podcast and- Renee Brown was talking about how she used to, I think her and her husband both used to be professional or competitive swimmers. Okay. It's been a while since they had gone swimming together. I don't know. And she was like, we were in the lake at a cottage and I was, she said I was wearing my speedo and we were like, stop swimming for a second. But I noticed, I noticed my husband was being really distant and she goes straight to like, Obviously, it's been a while since I've worn a Speedo. Like, I, he's probably thinking about, like, how gross I look or, like, I feel really bad. And so she decides to say something when they get back to land because it's eating mm-hmm. away at her. She's like, listen, what's coming up for me right now is that I noticed that you were quiet out on the lake. And so I'm, I have two ideas of what those thoughts that you could be having are and and one of them is that I'm like disgusting and the other one is that I don't look as good as I used to in a speedo and la 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 and she said her husband was like I was having a panic attack like because of my own oh because of my own fears about like being out on the water and Brene said obviously this is a heavily paraphrased story but Brene was like I literally took that assumption and ran with it and decided it was true and yeah. it was nowhere near true yeah she was like he has his own set of fears his own insecurities that he was focused on and I think that story is it illustrates your point yeah well I think it illustrates your point to that quote about being able to sit in the darkness yourself mm-hmm. I think that's true Brene Brown always ties back into Brene Brown because she's a wise woman. hundred percent. I think there's a quote that says we, as humans, we can become seduced by the chatter of our loudest fears. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, as soon as you take that step or turn a toe out and step into that brave mm-hmm. part of yourself, that's like, I am going to ask for support or I am going to mm-hmm. share. It's so interesting how quickly things can diminish yeah 
Yeah. And it's just like, I'm here for you. And I hear you. It's like mm-hmm. relieving. The validation is yes, a hundred percent. And I had a little segue in my brain of how I was going to segue this because we only touched on it lightly in regards to substance abuse or addiction or anything that anybody is ever dealing with on their own. It is so important that you do not let those like, do not get seduced by what's going on in your own brain And no matter at what stage or what your addiction looks like from the outside or what you think other people might think of you, you are so worthy of a bright future and capable of getting it. And the light still exists inside you, even if it doesn't feel like it does. So taking that brave step forward, even though it's hard to get help in any way that you possibly can, or at least let people into your life enough to understand what the suffering feels like internally. It's really important. That's something that I wish somebody could have said to me in those words. So I hope that they speak to someone. Yeah. And I think I'm like tearing up as I'm listening because I just know that feeling for different reasons of being trapped by my own shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're just trapped by your own thoughts and it gets worse. Like when you keep it in, it just gets worse. I mean, I think, and this is for an entire, a different podcast later on, but I I do think that's why I believe in the creation of safety because Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't feel like they have a safe person in their lives that mm-hmm. they can share with. Or some people go to therapy, the therapist isn't safe. Exactly. It's a really big thing. I've worked yes. with clients that are like, I finally worked up the courage to talk to a therapist that mm-hmm. was not helpful at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coercive or something like that. And so I think my point is for someone that's listening, just know that. I mean, I can't decide what safety means for someone else, but I will say someone who's on a podcast and entering into that vulnerable space of sharing their own story feels safe to me. So yeah. <laughs> knowing that your DMs are open, I think could be a lifeline. For and they are. I'll just repeat that again in case anybody missed it earlier. <laughs> again, shame and safety and speaking up could be its own podcast, yeah. but... Yeah, like, how do we define safety, you know, and it's boundaries is huge, I think. Boundaries is huge. I also recommend, though, it has a slight religious tint, the book Safe People by Townsend. It's good. I think there are universal safety characteristics. Mm -hmm. And I always say with my clients, you might not be able to verbalize safety, but you'll probably know what it feels like mm-hmm. because you know what it doesn't feel like. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, I think compassion feels safe for me. Yeah. Yep. Uh, no power dynamic at all yeah. feels safe to me. I, I feel like those are universal. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. It can shift person to person. This topic of safety to reminded me of something else I wanted to say, say it. which 
was I spoke to how my mind, body, and soul connection dissipated. And if anybody else is in that part of my journey that I've talked about, the running away, the shame spiral, the internalizing, that disconnect, the first thing that came back for me after seeking help for my addiction and after years, I think I joined Army of Sass, which is a Toronto dance community in 2015. So it was five years after diagnosis. But the point for me is the first thing that came back was finding safety and a home again in my own body. And that's what I wrote about on the Move to Heal blog when I first talked about MRKH. But being able to find presence in my own body was, I firmly believe, the thing that first brought me back to being who I am today. And I know people find that through breath work, any kind of movement, yoga. So finding something, no matter what you're suffering with, even just suffering from the anxiety of this pandemic, remembering to get back into your body is so healing. And from there, for me, that's where I felt my mind came back, like my mental strength and resilience came back tenfold after I knew that I was safe in my own body. And then from there, and that's where I feel like I am now, I feel truthfully like lit the fuck up with my soul's purpose at this point. But I feel like it was like body, mind came back. And then finally, I was in a place where I am now where I feel like I've actually had the ability to entertain what my purpose is and how that makes me feel and why I'm here. I think you also so beautifully like and eloquently described the Move to Heal project because I feel similarly about the body. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think your story can be useful, of course, for people with MRKH, also for people with trauma. Yeah maybe buried, unresolved. Mm -hmm. And for that, I would recommend the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Huge fan of the book. And it just talks about how, like we hold trauma in the body. It shows up physiologically in the fascia. It affects our brain. And the book really breaks that down. And Bessel talks a lot about this, but so much of healing is getting back into the body. Mm -hmm. And looking at those questions, what feels safe for me? Can I form a positive relationship with my body? Can I learn to, and I say learn because it is a learn, but like learn to feel comfortable in my own skin mm -hmm. and tying that to army of SAS or a place like soul cycle, the community yeah. we had in Toronto, yeah. not, not speaking for soul cycle on a, on a global standpoint, but our community in Toronto yeah. community is a part of that. Yes, I think that reconnecting with the body, this is why fitness places are so important and why it's an absolute travesty that they're not open right now mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. But this is where healing is in yes. community, in moving our bodies together, in talking about it after, mm -hmm. in that united action. Mm -hmm. So thank you for going back to that point. I think it's super important. But for anyone 
just to loop back to your socials and how to connect with you. Yeah. I was going to say contact and then I went to say connect, but I'll make sure maybe I'll drop your Instagram handle. In I would love that. The show notes and I will also loop your link. I have, uh, I was going to say, I have a website coming. <laughs> okay. I know, right? Corp Nation. I know. <laughs> but at the end of the call, she says, I have a website. <laughs> classic Scorpio. It will. It Right now, if you go there, there's literally nothing. But if you want to link Kylie-McMahon.com, it will in the next few months exist as an actual website. Hey, well, really excited to hear more about this. Would love to have you back on the, on the cast. Later. I would be so thrilled. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead. I would love that. Say on behalf of me right now, solo, but also on behalf of everyone listening, I just feel inspired by your vulnerability and inspired by you as a human. You already know this. You know I feel this way about you. But I just think it takes an incredible amount of strength to share what we've gone through. It takes a lot of courage. So thank you for being that inspiration for me. I know you are. I'm like getting emotional. I know, me too. (laughs) Thank you for being that person for me. And you inspire me to continue sharing. So yeah, and I just know that, I know that we will get lots of positive responses from this podcast. I just know that just by you being who you are, you're helping people. So important for me to end on that note. Yeah. Okay, press and see what happens. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much. Bye.